Podcast. I'm Alan Cavana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of Motorsports Analytics. On this episode, we answer listener questions ranging from big track struggles, possible returns to the Cup Series, and underperformers. And we have a big Daytona preview for the most pressure-packed race I can remember in a long time. But first, as always, this is episode 76. This is the Danny Weinberg edition. David, this one is deep. I thought we might go with the the 76 ball that used to be at the tracks. But no, we went with Danny Weinberg. And I can't wait to hear where this goes because what... I don't know who Danny Weinberg is. Uh, I can look up and find out that he is a California racer. Uh, came from California in the 50s, raced in the 60s. Uh, made just 17 cup starts, four of them in a number 76. He has a victory. And after that, David, I will let you take it from here because I can't wait to find out. <laughs> uh, for all you knew, he could have been fictional before he sure. looked him up. Absolutely. Uh, he is very real. He was a Jewish dirt track racer, kind of an oddity, but furthermore, a successful dirt tracker and a NASCAR race winner. You're right. Only 17 starts in the NASCAR Cup Series between 1951 and 1964. Save for the occasional start at Riverside, which was a road course in California, all of his starts came on the dirt. He was a specialist in an era of NASCAR when that was a thing. Seven of his 17 career starts resulted in top five finishes. That's a pretty quality record. Huh. So I figured this is, this is good enough to give him his due. He was driving the number 76 car when he scored his only Cup Series pole at the legendary Ascot Park. That was the dirt track which became synonymous with Turkey Night, the big USAC race uh, annually on Thanksgiving. Weinberg's lone Cup Series victory came in 1951 at March Banks Speedway in Hanford, California, which was a half-mile dirt track. He held off Marvin Panch to win that race. And it should be said that Weinberg's win was one of three in NASCAR history for the manufacturer Studebaker. Those who saw the movie Ford versus Ferrari will (laughs) recall that this was a joke. Uh, Studebaker was recommended by Ken Miles to the customer who wasn't a good enough driver for a sports car. This isn't your car. Your car is most likely a Plymouth or a Studebaker. Yes, even in the 60s, driving a Studebaker was not cool. But Danny Weinberg made it cool because he made it into a race winner in the NASCAR Cup Series. He put the number 76 on the pole. And he's the hero for episode 76 of Positive Regression. What a guy. Uh, again, another another one that's gone by that I didn't know. I, I never heard of Danny Weinberg, but I'm glad I have now. Episode 76 of Positive Regression, the Danny Weinberg edition. All right, let's get this episode started. Today's episode, a straight-up Q&A question and answer for patrons of motorsportsanalytics.com. Those at the $25 level or higher were asked by David for their best questions. And, of course, we got some good ones because that's what our listeners provide us, and we thank you for them. So let's just get it started, David. A great one to start out. From Matthew Rogers, he writes, I've noticed a number of drivers encountering larger tracks for the first time and struggling. I'm wondering what skills and abilities cause some drivers to have steeper learning curves than others at big tracks. Alternatively, are there predictors for certain drivers to be better on short tracks than longer ones or vice versa? For instance, Matthew writes, Greg Biffle seemed to be a much better intermediate and big track driver than short track racer. All right, uh, there's a few ways to break this down, David. So l- let's start because, uh, well, first we can talk about young drivers, right? Adapting and learning big tracks. And then maybe the longer term struggles, you know, of adapting to other types of tracks. So I put it this way, David, because in recent years, I've had a front row seat for a lot of these young kids and, you know, covering the truck series. I've seen a lot of these young kids come up. A lot of them make their first start on a big track and I've been there for it, right? I've seen it, whether they be practicing or just, you know, this year getting the green flag for their first time without any practice and being on big tracks for the first time after they turn 18 and we see young drivers struggle. And I can think of a big prime example of this very recently, David 
Do you know who I'm talking about? Oh, it's going to have to be Chandler Smith. It's going to be Chandler Smith. Positive regression, darling, Chandler Smith. Three big track starts this year. Three not-so-good finishes, right? His debut, 22nd at Kentucky. There was there was a rain issue, so maybe he got caught. 38th after a wreck at Michigan with a crash, and 20th last week after an incident at Dover involving his own teammate, Christian Eckes. Now, again, there are circumstances behind each of those, but I've talked with enough people, David, to know that the effect of air and high speeds at these tracks, side drafting, air pockets, it's an enormous learning curve for these young drivers because it's something they've never experienced before. I think to explain it, it, the effect that learning air and how to drive around other big trucks and vehicles at those speeds is something we can't really appreciate as much because it's hard to see it's kind of hard to explain. It's hard to plan for. You can't put it in the simulator. High-speed air issues, I think, are tough to learn in competition, and I think that's what we see with a lot of young drivers, especially like a year like this in the truck series. Raphael Lassard has told me the whole air deal is something he's never experienced before, and when you don't have practice to even think about getting near another truck, it's so hard to learn in a race. And I think you can look at the the struggles of Chandler Smith. Some of those issues, like what we saw at Dover, coming in on another truck so quickly, if you go back and watch that replay, I think some of that was air issues, David. This is such a good question. Matthew gets a gold star oh. for, for just this question. Uh, if you stopped me in the garage area at a NASCAR race and just wanted to talk specifically about this, I'm there for it. I don't think that there is a, a foolproof answer, but a lot depends on the types of tracks drivers see very early in their careers. If drivers are competing and winning on multiple tracks with different needs, then that's a good indicator that they can assimilate to most tracks on the NASCAR schedule. And if we think about that, what has happened recently, Chase Elliott, Kyle Larson, Eric Jones, Christopher Bell, they competed on a lot of different tracks and won at a lot of different tracks. So their rise through the ranks was relatively meteoric. But even then, some drivers might just have limitations anyway. I think we should consider the plight of sprint car drivers coming into NASCAR. They're always hailed for their what for their car control and they're hailed as drivers willing to search around for different viable grooves and to an extent this pans out on the wide tracks the banked tracks most of them intermediates but really tracks that contain multiple grooves that's that's kind of what it is while Yes, that is a characteristic that can translate. It isn't the sole barometer for success. So case in point, I'm currently working on volume one of the Motorsports Analytics Prospect Bible. And for it, I spoke with Josh Wise, who is a coach to several drivers, most of them prospects. And he mentioned uh, non-winged sprint car drivers specifically really have no concept of downforce oh. and how it applies to decision-making in stock cars. That has to be learned. So you're right, Alan. There, there's just some cases where drivers won't see this coming up, and and, and sometimes it cannot be grasped. So – when we think about sprint car drivers coming in NASCAR, we think about Tony Stewart and Casey Kane and Kyle Larson. And yeah, they all got it. They had to learn it, but they eventually got it. Uh, Christopher Bell currently has it. But it never really worked out well for Brad Sweet or Kevin Thomas Jr. They really struggled and ultimately never got over that mental block. If we remember... Brad Sweet, when he was in the truck series, he was driving that number 90 Great Clips truck. He crashed a lot, and he's not a bad driver. He's tallying a ton of wins right now in the world of outlaws. But this specific concept was foreign to him, and it's clear that this it isn't a given that it's ever going to be learned. And Alan, on the flip side of that, a place like Martinsville with – 
tight corners, one groove. Kyle Larson once told me that it was like coming to a complete stop and then turning the car. And that is nothing like anything sprint car drivers have ever seen. And Larson really struggled with that track. And Alan, you might remember this, but before Martinsville this year, you asked me about Christopher Bell as a fantasy option. And I told you that that seems like a terrible <laughs> idea. The The way that Christopher Bell drives and given his upbringing, that dude is probably allergic to a place like Martinsville because it's just not in his nature. And for, for other drivers, and I'm thinking locally here, drivers who only compete at one track, uh, like they win 12 or 15 times a year, but it's only South Boston. Uh, you know, they might, they might pop on the radar. You might read about them on Twitter, but ultimately that kind of thing is problematic for their cup series hopes. That isn't relevant to modern day in the cup series. I racked my brain to come up with the most recent one track driver to make it. And I'm using air quotes. I think it's Timothy Peters and Whoa. it's arguable as to whether he made it really because if the end game was cup, he only made it to the truck series where he was a race winner, but that speaks to how having an eclectic upbringing within racing is pretty much a prerequisite nowadays. And to a level beyond that, Drivers who only compete on tracks with one groove in their youth might not be used to having to compete on tracks with more than one groove. All of a sudden, there's this creativity that is required that was never fostered. It was never learned. And other drivers who know how to search for grooves pass them pretty easily. They're, they're at a sizable advantage. And for this, Bubba Wallace comes to mind. I think the majority of his wins at the East Series level were on one groove racetracks. I know he won twice at Greenville Pickens, and that is a flat one groove racetrack. Alan, do, do you happen to know what he claims is his favorite racetrack right now? It's, it's Martinsville. Ah, there it's you Martinsville. go. <laughs> yeah, a flat one groove racetrack. And it makes a ton of sense. That's where he's comfortable. On And on tracks with multiple grooves, he has struggled a lot at times. That's been visible. One of the least efficient passers in the Cup Series right now where the majority of the races are on tracks with multiple grooves. So this is certainly an interesting subject, and I am grateful for the question. I, I just don't know that there is one specific answer. There's just always going to be a lot to think about and unpack because at the root of a driver's success or failures, we can always backtrack and figure out the why of it all. And I think it just comes down to the upbringing. What have they seen most uh, in their youth as they were preparing for a, uh, a bigger career within NASCAR? Yeah. And look, like I said, there was two parts to this question. I felt at least look, we talked, I talked about the new drivers, right? Who have never experienced air, right? Or you said downforce for some other drivers or, you know, just anything like that, just getting next to another vehicle going that high and experiencing, I mean, going that fast and experiencing what that, that effect is like. You, you, you can only get that by experiencing it and, and struggling through it. But what about the Greg Biffle example, right? I mean, uh, someone who maybe never had success at a track like Martinsville, even though Though he was a successful race car driver, maybe a Hall of Famer one day, um, you know, never having that short track su success. Uh, some of that was on Roush. I mean, for a good decade and a half, maybe even now, Roush has never been good at Martinsville. I, I can't remember a time of them, you know, highly succeeding there uh, in recent memory. Uh, but then you think of a guy like Rusty Wallace, who, you know, was known as a short track specialist or Martin Truex Jr. for a long time, right? Didn't have a short track win, wasn't sniffing much success, obviously gets into better equipment later in his career and then finally breaks through and then does super well and is a short track Martinsville master, it seems like lately. Uh, how do you explain veterans that still continue to struggle or may have one weakness or so? I think that comes to learning the craft. Uh, when, when Denny Hamlin was on, our podcast earlier this year talking about drafting in Daytona. Yeah, he won right out of the gate. His first start at Daytona 
in the Bush clash was a win, but he believed that he wasn't this good until, you know, he was age 35. And it just took a lot of at-bats at a track like Daytona or at a place like Talladega to be able to fully comprehend what was happening and to have a kind of expert awareness. Same can be said for Martin Truex at the short track level in the Cup Series. It took a while before before he became this good, but look at him now. He's perfect. You're still learning as you're in the Cup Series. The trick is you have to be good elsewhere to stay in the Cup Series. And I think for Biffle, the irony of this is that he was essentially discovered by Benny Parsons winning in in the short track ranks uh, on television, Benny Parsons was watching Greg Biffle win one of the winter heat races, and he dialed up Jack Roush and said, "I think I've found a driver for you." So it it really wasn't it wasn't so much that he struggled on short tracks; he just wasn't good relative to other drivers that had that kind of one groove strength. I mean, Matthew's right. I can't recall Greg Biffle ever seriously looking good at Martinsville. Um, and when it came to tracks that contained a ton of speed, like a Fontana or a Michigan, yeah, Biffle was lights out. And those Roush cars were very good at Michigan. Jack takes that track very seriously. Biffle was kind of the prototypical driver for what Roush did best it sort of didn't matter that he wasn't particularly good at short tracks. But now when we're focused on building well-rounded race car drivers, it is something that takes time because you don't know for sure what a driver is going to experience in their upbringing. And it's not cost effective to hop from track to track to get all of the experience. And sometimes it just doesn't happen. Still, it would behoove every driver to try and do that. But that's not always the case. And that's what some of these lower divisions are for, are to maybe work on the foibles, work on the weaknesses that exist in your repertoire to get to a point where if you can have some staying power in the Cup Series, you get to your late 30s and you become an expert at the thing that you struggled with, kind of like Martin Truex right now. Buying yourself some time. Great question from Matthew Rogers and uh, one we could talk about for a long time, but we'll move on for, from, for now. Next up, from Nick Fish. What are the odds Justin Allgaier moves back up to Cup in his career? Between his partnership with Brandt, sponsor, and Hendrick's apparent desire for pay drivers, I feel he would be a good fit. Uh, David, I think we could expand this a little bit beyond Allgaier, but uh, first, the, the direct example. I'm worried, David, this question makes an assumption here that, that the price for an HMS Cup ride is suddenly the price for a good Xfinity ride. Are you making that assumption from the question, or I don't think we can go that far, can we? <laughs> well, uh, I, I think I can answer the question succinctly. Um the, the odds are poor. Okay. Uh, I, would, <laughs> I, would, I would say that to be the case. Um, I'll explain why. I won't let that just linger. As it pertains to Hendrick Motorsports, I wrote this past week uh, for Forbes in, I guess, what is quickly becoming the David Smith Monday column. I don't know how that happened. Whoa. But I I – wrote that Hendrick Motorsports may just home in on a driver that has some guaranteed backing. So while this isn't out of the realm of possibility, Hendrick still wants to compete for wins. They just don't really want to break the bank to pay for them. Uh, and, and that's not a slight on Justin Allgaier. He he does have a low ceiling in that regard, but that's only because he's 34. Mm-hmm. He's been around a while. His strengths are known. His weaknesses are known. And who's going to know him better than the team that put him in the car at Indianapolis uh, to substitute for, for Jimmy when uh, Jimmy was out with COVID? Uh, I, I would say that they know what they have in Justin Allgaier, and that was probably the reason that he was a, a quick pop in for that ride, but as a sustainable replacement, I don't 
see that. Now, having said all that, why guys like Justin Allgaier and Michael Annette and drivers before them like Elliot Sadler, who have, you got it right, decent financial backing to choose whatever ride they want in the Xfinity series. The reason they stay in the Xfinity series is because their dollar goes a longer way in the Xfinity series, meaning that they are more competitive and these guys are race car drivers after all, and they get a day off during the week. (laughs) The Xfinity series is not a bad life, really. No, it's not the top flight. It's not the the number one tier, but it's still pretty good. So I think Daniel Hemmer told us about that last year, uh, just mentioning how significant that difference is between racing on Sunday and the, how short it makes the week and it kind of hinders your development if you're not really up to speed. So I just wanted to throw that in there. That, that day is significant, David. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty relentless schedule. Um, and you know, if you consider the options, the realistic options that are available to these guys with this backing are small teams. And I think the, the example for Allgaier and Annette were both at H. Scott Motorsports. They were there at the same time. And I think an equivalent of that now would be Go Fast Racing or Gaunt Brothers Racing. And for these guys, I have to ask, is that something that's appealing? You know, competing for 30th place, 28th place, and working on Sundays. Perhaps they can earn more in salary, but is the quality of life better? I'm not so sure. So I think to get kind of back to the center of Nick's question, why is Justin Allgaier not in the Cup Series? It might be because he just doesn't want to be there, specifically in the ride that he can afford. I'm sure he could snap his fingers and force Brandt back into the Cup Series, but that'd be another tier of competition and one that he might not want. Okay, factor that in. Let me throw this other scenario at you, or just this hypothetical. In terms of some of these guys like an all-guy, or I think of Johnny Sauter, too, who used to be in the Cup Series. When they go to uh, the Xfinity Series or truck and have success, beyond just what they're doing on paper, their numbers, their measurables, uh, the checkered flags, the success they have down there, do you think I hate to say, is there some sort of taint, if you will, that they've been in the Cup Series and and they go back down? We never see that, you know, Cup Series move down and really come back. I can't think of a, an example of where that's really happened or where, where we've seen a bounce back. Is that because they're, the, the talent a team doesn't want to take a talent on a, a 34-year-old plus? Or is there some sort of, hey, you had your shot and we know what you did with it. We don't want to let you try again. What do you think that is? That's possible. I mean, perception is everything. Mm-hmm. Eric Almarola might be an exception to okay. that. He, yep. he, uh, his initial seasons in the Cup Series were quite bad, uh, really awful. And he went down to junior motorsports, ironically, found a little bit of footing and slipped back into Richard Petty Motorsports at a time where there was some instability in the organization. And he kind of built his Cup Series career back in from there and created some staying power for himself. But that isn't the norm. You're right. Uh, Cup teams don't always look as deep as we do uh, sometimes. And that can be difficult. I think it's close to impossible for someone like Justin Allgaier to earn a ride, a good ride in the Cup Series completely on merit now that he's 34. But it worries me for someone like say Brett Moffitt, who was technically the Cup Series Rookie of the Year. The the one year that he competed in the Cup Series, he didn't stick around. He found footing elsewhere, became a Truck Series champion. Do you think a rise back to prominence is available to him? I don't believe he's on the radar. His name has not come up based on what I've heard this year, and there are a lot of open rides. So... Alan, you're right. Perception is everything. And the, the, the taint, as you said, the, the, the bad smell is probably real. Um, even if it might not be completely fair at times. Yeah. But I'm also balancing that with what you just said about quality of life or wanting to win. Um, 
you know, who's more likely to take a, a second or lower tier cup ride if available? Someone like Justin Allgaier or a youngin like if, if Kaz Grala had money or if Justin Haley had a bunch of money, right? I mean, who's more likely to take that riding and, and for, run that experience? Uh, I would think it's one of the younger guys because Justin Allgaier uh, can prove himself successful and win races and be a champion in Xfinity. Maybe I'm just yeah. talking on my butt. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, I, no, I, I think you're onto something. I think age factors into it. Uh, and it ultimately would, would have Elliot Sadler wanted to come back to the cup series. I don't think that he would have been, uh, as prominent. I mean, it, it was getting to the point where, you know, his last races, he was having small tributes done for him when it was clear that it was going to be his final year. Does that happen if he's running for a backmarker team in the cup series? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, that's, that's some pretty powerful stuff. And he was competing for championships, really. I mean, if you want to look at that, that option wasn't available. Again, these guys are sportsmen. That's ultimately why they got into this. They enjoy competing. And so much of that, especially for someone like Justin Allgaier, who had Oh, a rough go, uh, of his Cup Series career with a, with a small team that just had a lot of struggles on their own. Um, that might have left a sour taste in his mouth. I mean, he's, he's got it pretty good right now. I know we talked about how bad his year has been to this point. He got a win last weekend, but it's, um, it's pretty cushy seat. I mean, he's in a, actually a really good position. So it'd be tough to disrupt that. All right. Great question from Nick Fish. Next question comes from Robert Cole. Robert wants to know, well, he says, I was a vocal supporter of the choose cone rule as it a simple solution to balancing out the double file restart inequality for each track at the driver's judgment. And I'm thrilled to say I get to, I attended the debut appearance. Now, obviously with the added decision for drivers to make comes an ability to make better decisions than others. Good point. Now that the choose zone is a more permanent fixture, is there any plan to track positions gained, David, gained or lost via lane choice? And what do you believe would be the most valuable metric to pull from this data? David, I I mean, again, how I interpret this is, I, well, first of all, how are you going to measure this? Are you measuring, are, are you keeping track of where they may start and where they choose and what they do with it? Are you going to come up with a metric of who, who's the best decision maker, if you will? Uh, where do we go with this new information that we're going to have from these new choose restarts? The answer to all of those questions is yes. Um, I, I, there is already a, an orange column on motorsportsanalytics.com for park patrons measuring the positional net from the time of the choose, the, the selection and two laps after the restart. I'm guessing right now because I'm tracking everything that more numbers will stem from there. Um, everything Robert mentioned is entirely on the table. And as I mentioned on last week's episode, measuring the decision and the execution of the restart itself should, from an analysis point of view, be treated as two separate things because it is two different talents. But the decision and execution will be intertwined for as long as this rule is in place. So I better get used to combining both at times. Um, so the, the, the short answer, Robert, is that eh, we're getting there. We'll, we'll figure out what's, <laughs> what's important and unpack them as such. But I want to point out that was a long question that Robert asked. And to some of our listeners, it might have seemed like overkill, but I think the importance of putting the decision in the driver's hands is largely undervalued. I spoke with Matt DiBenedetto uh, for an interview uh, earlier today. Our topic was restarts. And the way he framed it for me about the aggression that we see on restarts, he said that often he'll spend the entirety of one long green flag run attempting to account for just two spots. And that's either getting them making them up or holding them off. But really just two spots are at play. 
a restart because of the double file dynamic could yield eight spots. Wow. And yeah. Wow. Okay. I the, see what you're the, saying. And the decision on groove selection, which is new, could be worth two, four, more. But at the very least, it is a rough equivalent of a long green flag run distilled into a decision that has to be made in a matter of seconds. So that, I believe, <sighs> underscores the importance of this. Over time, I think the choose zone will become less complicated for viewers and even some of our listeners. Um, but right now, this all could seem like overkill. I promise you it's not. Robert understands the gravity of what is occurring, and it strikes me that competitors do as well. And that's why all of his uh, Robert's inquiries are relevant. This is an important moment now within a race that does need to be quantified from all angles. And frankly, that's why I'm taking the time to do this and get this right. I've got something on the website. There's going to be more, I'm sure, as the season completes and as 2021 uh, comes to fruition. But that is why. This isn't overkill. You have to consider the magnitude of the split-second decision because it is big. Wow, you're blowing my mind, David. I mean, you really, I mean, that was, that was enlightening to hear that. So good stuff from Matty D and yourself. Uh, it, it just, it also reminds me of, uh, again, the, the more, the longer we do it. I, I still maintain it took a few years for teams to really appreciate the importance of stage points, right, David? And, and, um, and strategizing around them and figuring out just how aggressive you need to be and how important they end up being. At the end of a year, I think that was a two year at least evolution for all the field to really understand that grasp of what one, you know, one extra point over 26 races is a big freaking deal to some right at the end. So and I think this choose zone, just the mentality and the data people will gather because, David, people are going to be looking at your data. Cup teams, cup drivers, they absolutely will be because this will come in when it comes to strategy. They will start making scenario books, right? I mean, what happens if you are X spot at this track with so many, you know, on, on a restart? I mean, we're going to have these data sets and it's going to take a few years, but I, I firmly believe what you just said that it's, that it's going to become more and more important as teams grasp this. For sure. I mean, this could ultimately be one of, Oh, I would estimate the one of the three most critical points uh, of each race is getting these decisions right, or at the very least, a driver putting um, himself in a position where he's comfortable or competitive on a restart because so much hinges on on that two lap window that uh, it's it's ridiculous at times, but certainly uh, what can't be questioned is its importance. Good stuff there. All right. Uh, next question from Adam. Who have been your biggest underperformers in the lower divisions so far? So anything below cup, uh, our biggest underperformers. Uh, David, I'll just take this as a, as the truck series, uh, pit reporter this year. Uh, I will absolutely point at Johnny Sauter, who I think would agree with you if we, uh, did an interview, uh, way out of the truck playoff picture. Uh, you could throw Stuart Friesen in that category, also underperforming just in terms of what he did last year. I think there's a little bit more of an excuse as that is a small team that switched everything up over the, uh, over the offseason, started kind of building, uh, a new alliance and building their own trucks and all that stuff. And without practice, at least that's something of an excuse for Friesen, not so much solder and GMS. Uh, David, I don't know if you want to chime in uh, over on the Xfinity side. I, I think I looked up motorsports analytics and Daniel Hemrick has a negative peer. If you'd like to explain to listeners what exactly that means, <laughs> it's not good. Uh, no, that would mean the car is outperforming the driver. Essentially he is holding back a very good race car. And that's a good call. Uh, we touched on Hemrick a few weeks back based on his top 15 running whereabouts. He is simply not getting finishes. Some of them have not been his fault. Some of them absolutely have been his fault. As his underlying stats, including central speed indicate, the team's Good. I mean, that, that is a very fast race car. So one of the top five fastest in the Xfinity series. 
So that is uh, one we could point to as uh, an underperformer. And the other one is Justin Allgaier, uh, another that we have also discussed. We've discussed him in this podcast. But look what happened last weekend at Dover. Got himself in the win column. But based on how uh, both of those junior motorsports teams are running, those are two drivers who should have better results. And I do have a truck series pick, and I and I use largely the same methodology. Todd Gilliland. Underperforming. A, oh, well, okay. I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you go first. <laughs> yeah, no, a, a massive disparity in his top 15 efficiency. Yep, yep. Since Chris Lawson became his crew chief, Gilliland's truck ranks fifth among series regulars in central speed. He's finished fifth or better just four times in the 11 races since Lawson joined up. And Gilliland is outside the playoff cutoff. His surplus passing has been particularly brutal. Negative uh, 4.93%. And that's that's pretty much universal across the board. Because in his first 10 measured races this year, he earned a positive pass differential just once. And that came in the first Kansas race where he led some laps. I mean, it looked pretty good at times, uh, but he ended up with a 10th place finish. So Todd Gilliland, I think, uh, breaking out into his, uh, his, his family team with uh, some familiarity at the crew chief position, uh, into a situation that was not as toxic as the one he had last year with KBM and Considering what his underlying numbers suggest, uh, yeah, that would be my shout for underperformer in the truck series. Yes, they, uh, and I appreciate the, how you put that because it, it, it that's what I think this podcast does well, Dave, and that's what you do well in terms of your analysis. When you think of underperformer, it's not just uh, the stat sheet and where you are in points. It's what you're doing with the equipment that you have and your explanation of, uh, of Todd Gilliland right there. Uh, was spot on, and I, I I apologize for even questioning it because I can tell you, David, <laughs> uh, your stats have been the star of a lot of truck production meetings on my part because I have mentioned Todd Gilliland's speed. I think if you're paying attention to my truck coverage, I picked him to win twice, and uh, yeah. So from that aspect, he has underperformed because he has not come through for me on my uh, very public uh, live television win pick. So, uh, Todd, maybe you can pick it up for the playoffs. We'll see what you can do there, but uh. Anyone else? I one one I wrote down was uh, I know you don't measure a lot by wins. That's not David's thing because uh, wins are. Um, I'll let you describe David why you don't put too much focus on wins. But Ross Chastain, uh, I thought would have a win or two by now, or at least be performing um, just a little more marquee level in, in the Xfinity series, and, and I'm not seeing it this year so far. No, the the wins aren't there, but the production is. Okay. Uh, he is a is a top five driver in terms of peer. Wins aren't totally on the level. Uh, there, there's a lot of nuance that we have to consider before we grade the magnitude of a result. But with Ross, I can kind of understand that because, for one, he was tapped last year when he was really a, a truck series championship contender more than anything else. He was competing in all three series, but tapped is kind of a future Ganassi driver. And I think the, the underperformance here is based more on the expectation and not perhaps what's actually occurring on the racetrack because the production is there. Colleague racing Great story, independent team that seems to be doing well, and they are a part of an RCR alliance, but they are not RCR proper, and it's going to be difficult to contend with the likes of Stuart Haas and JGR and Penske in the Xfinity series. That is very difficult. So it wasn't ever as if his task was going to be particularly easy. I don't know that we should have expected eight wins a la Chase Briscoe from Ross Chastain, but I think it's okay to maybe scratch your head and wonder why he hasn't won at least once. Uh, he is returning to a place this weekend. He won the summertime Daytona race last year. That could be an opportunity. He's going to be in the Xfinity Series playoffs, so it begins anew uh, around September. So, 
it's still, it's still possible. I just wouldn't write him off completely as somebody I would consider a disappointment. All right. Hey, good discussion so far. Uh, those were the uh, questions from patrons at motorsportsanalytics.com. Uh, look, it pays off to be a patron. You get some amazing information and, uh, we'll answer your questions on here. So it's good stuff and great questions. So thank all of you. All right, David, let's move on to our weekly preview because we're going to Daytona. The trucks are going to Gateway, but we're all talking about Daytona this week because it's the end of the regular season for the Cup Series, right? And that means someone can win their way in. The playoffs are still to be decided. Of all tracks, it's happening at Daytona International Speedway. It's the pressure that some of these teams are on, David. Uh, I did a... Uh, uh, Matt Benedetto. you said you talked to him this week. He was also on my A-list for Race Hub this week. And he revealed to me that his wife started crying at dinner the other night because that's how much pressure this week is packing on drivers and their families because they know it all comes down to this. So let's break it down. What we may see Saturday night, let's start with uh, the teams on the good side of the, the playoff cut. How do they stay on the good side, David? How do they survive Daytona? And I know it's a crazy question, but listeners know that there are some numbers, there are some analysis to Daytona and where safety may be found. So, David, for those still in the good side right now, like Matt Benedetto, how do you stay there? You know, during this year's Daytona 500, there were complaints about Joe Gibbs racing and Stuart Haas racing, punting on entire stages. There was confusion in the TV booth, on social media. Uh, even Kevin Harvick seemed to not know what was going on, if his radio chatter is to be believed. But Cole Pern, from the comfort of his couch, I'm guessing, summed it up the best when he wrote on Twitter that he was surprised about the response of a lot of folks to mitigating risk. In essence, why would you take a risk that is not necessary? And this was the first race of the season. This is the final race of the regular season. I think we're going to see a lot of risk mitigation on Saturday night. And what I mean by that is hanging in the back and riding far away from the lead pack, far away from the middle of the field, because the odds will tell you that is where wrecks occur. Alan, I'm fully prepared to watch someone like Ricky Stenhouse go out and lead this race because I don't see risk mitigation in his future at all. <laughs> but the, the Penske primary trio, that's, that's not De Benedetto. He's affiliated, but Keslowski, Blaney, Logano, they're all locked into the playoffs. I, I think they're just going to have a fun field day at Daytona. And I think the same can be said for Denny Hamlin. He has, Nothing to compete for except for playoff points via winning a stage or winning the race outright. But outside of that, I think the paths to getting out of this race or shocking the world by winning this race are very close to identical. Shooting for stage points is Pretty high risk, high reward, I think we can agree. In terms of defending a playoff spot, someone like William Byron does not need to win this race. He only needs to finish in the vicinity of Jimmy Johnson. Now, hmm. the counter to that, and this is where having this as the final regular season race gets incredibly complex, is if someone outside the playoff cutoff wins this race and leapfrogs both of them, yeah, that's a problem. But in reality, William Byron and Jimmy Johnson have zero control over that specific potential outcome. Thus, there is no reason to try to do something about that because you can't. So I believe risk mitigation will be the order of the day. 
we, we've been trying to figure out why, especially these summertime Daytona races are so chaotic, right? It, 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 it's just, it has broken bad in a number of races going back a few years. If anything can make this contest a little more straightforward and methodical, I would think the, the ramifications of it being the final regular season race are going to do that. Uh, but I, I, I don't know. I'm going to be a spectator just like you. I'm expecting pretty much everything to occur. It's weird. Cause it, as you've said, I mean, just the, the crash data shows, I mean, there's safety obviously well out front. There's safety in back and there's uh trouble right in the damn middle. Uh, if you're Matt to Benedetto, Jimmy Johnson or William Byron, uh, you need stage points. You need to be racing for those stage points. I would think right for the entirety of the race. If you are Tyler Reddick, if you're Ricky Stenhouse, Bubba Wallace, anyone else in the field, literally anyone else in the field just about, um, you, I don't know, can you ride and back the entire race, not worry about stage points, tearing your stuff up, right? Find safety in the back and then go like absolute hell at the end to just get that one victory, right? I mean, it's so strange to think about the different dynamics and strategies, if you can call it that, that will be going through some of these drivers' minds in terms of what you need to do to try to put yourself in a, in a quality position. And, and then you have other, you know, drivers already locked in going for their own stuff. Um, it, it's crazy to consider, um, think about helping someone. I mean, I think the three Penske cars can help their Wood Brothers teammate, right? They have nothing to lose and can only gain a, a teammate. Uh, who helps, <laughs> who do the Hendrick guys help? You know, do they each pick one? Does Chase Elliott and Alex Bowman pick a friend? Uh, do you want Jimmy Johnson in the uh, playoff, right? Do you help Jimmy Johnson to push him into the playoff? And then all of a sudden you have a seven time champion running with you, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's weird to think about all, all the different things that could happen on Saturday. Think about what the crew chiefs are going to have to wrestle with. If we think back to the Daytona 500, Denny Hamlin didn't pass a soul to get from the back to the front. Remember the JGR cars pitted in advance of the end of the first stage. They punted on that stage, but they were out front at the start of the second stage. That means Denny Hamlin didn't have to traverse hmm. through that murky middle of the pack. He didn't have to mix it up. He didn't have to do anything that would have risked his car that early in the race. Kershies so, are going to have to be thinking about that. How yeah. do we go and get what we need without putting ourselves in a vulnerable position? Yeah. I, um, if you're Matty my, D. My hope is the, that someone comes up with something great <laughs> and we come out of Daytona thinking, wow, he really had that aha, that eureka idea. Um, but that's, this is a, this is an incredibly complex race for something that is viewed widely as a crapshoot. There are so many things that are in driver and team controls. It's just how to avoid what is out of your control. That is the problem. If you're Matty D and the Penske boys, you go, I mean, you could theoretically, I mean, we've seen it before. We've seen those four control a race and let's just say in theory that they get, you know, they get one through four in the first stage. Well, if, the other, if other teams have punted on the first stage, they're suddenly, just like you said, out of position and find themselves mid pack. That's very bad. How do you find safety throughout the whole race and get points and be in front at the end? Uh, we're going to find out maybe on Saturday. I'm not sure if we are. <laughs> yeah. And let's think back to last year, last fall, the Talladega playoff race. Joey Logano did not win that race, but he scored the most points. This could be a scenario in which you get all you need to get from the first two stages and the result kind of doesn't matter or it just doesn't have to come down to that. So how teams address gathering the points they need to get through or stay safe, that could be interesting as well. Uh, there might be teams thinking, look, we might not have a shot at finishing, but we do have a shot at getting stage points, and that might keep us safe. That yeah. could be something to consider for these two Hendrick teams that they thought this way on road courses. They could bring a road course philosophy to a drafting track. That would be very interesting. 
Um, but there are a lot of ways, a lot of, uh, a lot of ways that this race can break. And I'm curious to see all of them. Yeah. Well, let's pick it. We don't often pick winners, right? We pick contrarian contenders and we will. David, why not? It's the end of the regular season. Let's pick some winners. Who wins Saturday night? How, how crazy are you going to get? I mean, it's pretty crazy to pick a, uh, make a pick for a drafting track race. It's pretty contrarian to do that, right? <laughs> uh, I would say if there is an overtime restart, Ryan Blaney, hmm. if there is not, and this race materializes more naturally, Joey Logano. Yeah, okay. uh, we should not forget how he uses multiple drafting lanes to his advantage. We saw this from him during the qualifying race in February. Uh, I've, I've rewatched that Daytona 500, uh, just kind of to, to gear myself up, but I also watched those two qualifying races. I can say with confidence that Denny Hamlin is the guy who makes things happen on drafting tracks, but Joey Logano is very good at capitalizing on things that are happening. And that is the difference between those two. And race breaks as it should. I think Logano will be very tough. I'm going the other side then. I'm taking Denny Hamlin. I mean, as as much as I want drama, look, I'm a storyteller by nature. I love the drama. I would love to see uh, a four wide for with Bubba Wallace, Tyler Reddick, uh, Ricky Stenhouse, uh, Michael McDowell on the final corner uh, coming through for a spot on the playoff. But we can't ignore Denny Hamlin, Daytona, and all his skills, David. That would be dumb of me to do. So I'm, I think Denny Hamlin wins just because uh, he's so damn good there. So sorry if that's boring. <laughs> no, fair play to you. I yeah. mean, he, he is he he has been the show right yeah. at at Daytona, and um, that's why we had him earlier this year on the podcast just to pick his brain about what uh, he and his crew chief Chris Gabehart think about going into the Daytona 500 specifically, but those principles apply on a smaller scale for the summer race. And, you know, he, he's never won two at Daytona in the span of a season, so he's got something to shoot for. Uh, next up, who makes the playoffs? What are their, I mean, it's essentially two spots to fill, uh, or unknown. I, Clint Boyer's fine, so uh, I would hope uh, for his sake, uh, with 57-something point lead, I think. But so it comes down to two, right? I mean, there's Matt D, Willie, Willie B, and Jimmy Johnson, uh, chasing in terms of points. Um, or there could be a new winner and it all jumbles up. David, who are the two that make it? I will pick Matt DiBenedetto and William Byron. Ooh. A race is more likely to go off as planned than break chaotic. I know this is Daytona, but I'll, I'll still stick with the most obvious answer here. I'm actually more inclined to think inclement weather will impact this weekend more than crashing, or maybe it's a mixture of both, but 40 to 60% chance of rain for Saturday. And in Florida, that pretty much means it'll rain <laughs> on race day. I hope that becomes flawed logic. But if this race is called early because of rain, that to me is the worst case scenario and would likely alter everything dramatically from a standings perspective. So fingers crossed that doesn't happen. But in the instance it doesn't, I will remain boring and pick the two guys that are already mathematically in. Okay, that's fair. Well, then I'll switch it up and just go with the drama and say uh seven time the Jimmy Magic does it one more time, and it's Matt DiBenedetto and Jimmy Johnson makes it. Uh I don't love Jimmy's recent Daytona record. Uh, not great. Um, what's that saying? Not great, Bob. Uh, there's a lot of crashing <laughs> <laughs> in um. In his recent, uh, if you look at some of, let's see, he crashed in, uh, the 500. Uh, last year was actually pretty good. He had two top tens. Uh, the year before that, uh, two crashes. Uh, so it seems like a dice roll for Jimmy Johnson. I just think it comes up, uh, storybook and we, uh, so that's the playoffs. We differ there. So you and I will be, um, it'll be Jimmy versus Willie B between you and I on Saturday night. And David, let's, why not? Let's add some contrarian pick. Who is your contrarian pick for Daytona? Oh, I think the easiest, obvious pick is Ty Dillon. Uh, his, what? His risks. The easiest <laughs> pick is Ty Dillon? There, there's no I one easier. Slide, I was than trying to slide Dillon. down. I was trying to slide down and pass you. Oh. Look, okay. Ty Dillon, his risks 
are conventional. He races on drafting tracks uh, very well. What he does is not headline grabbing, but it is very sensible. He finished sixth, sixth, and fourth in the three Daytona races prior to this year's 500. He's also made seven career starts at Talladega. He finished on the lead lap of all of them. Uh, so I think managing to finish the race is part and parcel to competing for the win in these particular races. Uh, I, I think he finds himself a good finish. Uh, a win would be pretty incredible, uh, fairly remarkable. Uh, but just a good day. Jermaine Racing, Ty Dillon, uh, they kind of need it. Uh, and this is one of the tracks that they tend to race at intelligently. I love storylines, David. I love uh, drama. Who? What a better storyline than Ryan Newman. I'm stealing your contrarian pick from the Daytona 500, and I'm just going to take it and run with it. So the next Daytona race, uh, Ryan Newman damn near won in February, so I'm going to pick him as my contrarian contender. Oh, that would be quite something. And yeah. again, we talked to... Uh, we talk about drivers with an ability to avoid calamity at these tracks. He was at the end competing for the win uh, last fall at Talladega, same at, uh, in February at Daytona. He found himself there in contention for the win at the end of the race. And that's that's kind of the trick. I mean, <laughs> figuring out how to do that is not easy. As we have mentioned, there is a lot that goes into that, but it says something that there are a lot of the same drivers able to stick around that in and of itself is a talent that doesn't get stated enough. I understand why fans say these races are crapshoots, but there's far more going on um, beneath the eye. And I I think Ryan Newman has a great chance, and you're right. That'd be the storybook ending. Sure, and let's not. I mean, I didn't say Ricky Stenhouse because I don't know if he is a contrarian pick. He's he's obviously a winner there. Tyler Reddick can win. Bubba can win. Michael McDowell, Corey LaJoy. I mean, you never know what the situation, the craziness, and the situation that'll pop out on Saturday night. And uh, I'm looking forward to it, David. So another good episode, episode 76 of Positive Regression. Don't forget we are available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. We're available no matter your device. Our entire catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. That stuff really does help spread the word. Tell your friends, tell everybody you know. If you do learn something from this, we would love to hear about it. We do notice your comments, and they are appreciated. If you have any questions, send them to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, what are you working on? For Forbes Sports Money, I wrote this week on the effects of COVID-19 on NASCAR free agency and included some other tidbits on Corey LaJoy and why his departure from GoFast Racing makes sense for him and the question of Jimmy Johnson's replacement. It's still undecided. Uh, so do check that out. You can find links to that article on my Twitter account at David Smith, M.A. And as for motorsportsanalytics.com, all stats for Cup, Xfinity, and Trucks will be updated before the Daytona Gateway weekend. If you're not already a patron, do consider signing up. $5 a month will grant you access. Those at the $25 level, in addition to guaranteed answers of your questions on this podcast, you will place yourself on the distribution list for volume one of the Motorsports Analytics Prospect Bible, which is my primary project right now. And that is coming soon. You will not want to miss that. All right. Good stuff there. And you saw the benefits of uh, being a patron. So uh, make sure you sign up for that. Uh, David, uh, as I revealed just a few seconds ago, Matty D was on the A-list this week on Race Hub, and it's really good. Matt DiBenedetto, great interview and a lot of good stuff to say uh, including his interactions with Jimmy Johnson last week at Dover. And I make him answer the question, David, who's the bigger A-list driver from California, Jeff Gordon or Jimmy Johnson? So make sure you go back and watch that because he's got a great answer, especially heading into this weekend. Also, I'm interviewing the winner of the Xfinity Series race in Daytona. That'll be on Race Hub next week. And 
I will be in Gateway on Pit Road for the Truck Series race. Uh, fun track out there. It's kind of a mini Darlington, and I'll see some of the Indy cars out there, so that'll be cool. But make sure you watch FS1 noon on Sunday for the truck race. Another good episode. It's going to be an awesome weekend of racing. Daytona, Gateway. Uh, just make sure you tune in and uh, enjoy it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Positive Regression. For David Smith, I'm Alan Cavana. Have a great week, everyone. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.